This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget you can get in touch with me. Email me matt at times.radio if you've got any suggestions about things we should do on the podcast or you just want to have a moan or you've spotted something or if you're a bit musical and you want to record us a Christmas jingle. Uh, Some of you did that last year. I think some podcast listeners. Um, And we'll play the jingle on the podcast and we'll also use it on the radio. So you know what I mean. Like a nice jingle. Bit Christmassy. Matt Chorley on Times Radio, 10 till 1, Monday to Friday. Put some of that to music. Lovely. Email me, matt at times.radio. Right, coming up on today's episode then, a thing to keep an eye out for in the next couple of weeks, the big Tory exodus. Tory MPs have been given until December the 5th to say whether or not they're going to stand again. Some of them might just quit a bit later on. Uh, But we're predicting a a big exodus, as many as 80, some say. So really fascinating big thing coming up today. We've got Lucy Fisher, Matthew Paris, former Tory MP, Times columnist. Uh, we've got uh, Dips of the Archive for Giles Brandreth and a really wide-ranging chat, I think we'll describe it, with Edwina Curry. Everything from how do you make some money after you get the boot as an MP to um, does it help with your memoirs if you've had an affair with the Prime Minister. So all that's coming up on the podcast in just a moment. First, though, is Everest, our columnist panel. No India night today. So Manveen Rana joined James Marriott. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, on a Thursday morning, it should be night at the Marriott, but we've got no Indian night. We have got James Marriott. Morning, James. Good morning. And we've got Manveen Rana from Stories of Our Times. Morning, Manveen. Hello. Nice to have you both with us. Now, I've got a feeling, were you, were you both on together the last time we had some immigration stats? Yeah, I think we've decided to call ourselves Man at the Marriott. <laughs> Man at the Marriott, exactly. <laughs> Man, at, We can't get into a hotel these days because it's all full of migrants or something. <laughs> That's a terrible segue. Well, well into there these. aren't enough migrants to run the run hotel. the hotels. Good. Yeah. That's balance. Lovely. <laughs> so, what are we to make of the fact that uh, net migration, so the gap between the number of people coming uh, being more than the number of people leaving, five hundred and four thousand. Now, I'm old enough to remember when David Cameron and Theresa May used to promise they were going to get net migration below a hundred thousand. It's currently five times that. And interestingly, James driven mostly by people from outside the EU. So, which actually we had control of before, and we definitely have control now. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I think it sort of comes at a sort of really fascinating time in the immigration debate, because we've been, you know, a, a, a bit of polling recently that suggested that, you know, public attitudes 
to immigration is softening. These sort of immigration figures used to be kind of big media events and, you know, there'll be a lot of kind of sort of fury about them. But, you know, we're now in a slightly different situation where a lot of businesses are saying they wish that immigration was higher because they're having trouble finding workers. Um, there are sort of, there seem to be sort of softening public attitudes on migration. And yet, of course, at the same time, you know, Keir Starmer has come out this week and, you know, said that Britain has to wean itself of its addiction to cheap labour and that, you know, labour is going to be much tougher on immigration than they have been historically. Yeah, and the interesting thing as well, Manvin, in terms of the political reactions to this, these figures, I remember when I was reporting on them, uh, every time they came out, so every six months we used to get them, there's always been slightly delayed because of COVID, but... Uh, every six months, we'd have a huge row with a load of uh, uh, Eurosceptics saying, this is why we need to leave the EU. And then we can get these numbers down. And actually, the numbers have, have never come down before or after Brexit. I mean, I think this sort of goes to the heart of, you know, what was um, a, a massive contradiction in the way that Brexit was sold to people. Um, I mean, you know, you sort of said you remember when David Cameron used to promise that net migration would be in the tens of thousands. I mean, Suella Braverman has been doing that more recently. That promise hasn't gone away. And yet, you know, just this morning we had Michael Gove doing the media round sort of explaining that he hoped immigration along a points based system would actually increase. And that's how you would sort of be able to furnish businesses with the, the staff um, and you know, go become the labour shortages that we have. And when Brexit was sold to people, there were basically sort of two separate campaigns. And I think a lot of people were told we would be taking back control of our borders, immigration be coming down. And then you sort of had the slightly different version, which was the we're going to be Singapore on Thames. And that, you know, as Liz Truss in her brief tenure um, made it quite clear, you know, one of her big policies was actually to increase immigration, uh, which went down incredibly badly with her own cabinet. Um, but there's always been that contradiction there. And, and you can't sort of make the two work. If you, you know, the moment you leave the EU, you need to go around kind of with a begging bowl to get trade deals around the world. Um, you know, Suella Braverman, who'd clearly seen something of these figures beforehand and very publicly said one of the biggest problems was Indian students who would then overstay their visa. And, you know, if you look at the figures today, a lot of those are actually from students. And the um, I think they're, they're coming from India more than they used to in the past. They've now overtaken China. Um, so she was clearly looking at that. But that sort of almost scuppered the deal with India, which sort of, um, well, I think, got her into quite a lot of trouble. And that's how, that's the problem now. You know, if, if we want a, a trade deal with India and with lots of other countries, one of the, you know, the quid pro quo is that we have to give them more student visas. We have to give them more work visas. And that was kind of always going to happen, but we never talked about it in the run-up to Brexit. And now reality is sort of hitting, and it's it's really hard to tell people who voted for Brexit thinking immigration would fall, that that's just not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose, James, it's, it's the diff, it's, it's, there were two different... Take back control was one thing, and that's actually partly why concern about immigration dropped really sharply, is it, you know, is one of the big issues the country faces after Brexit, despite the numbers still going up. There used to be a sort of cause and effect. You could sort of see the concern, you know, rose when the numbers rose and so on. As soon as we voted to leave, the proportion of people who thought that immigration was one of the big challenges facing the country fell really sharply. And that was because we'd taken back control. And actually, the government said, look, we've got control now and we are choosing who we let in. Then maybe that's a that maybe that that that, that that's a very sort of nuanced argument against we are we are pulling up the drawbridge and shutting the door. Yeah, I, I, th I think it's so interesting that that sort of, that, you know, that symbolic victory 
um, seemed to, you know, because I guess politics is all symbols in a way, isn't it? And that symbolic victory seems to have kind of mattered more than the figures do. But I mean, you know, this kind of, I think this statistic, I think is it, is it a record high that people are saying? I wonder if, you know, half a million people that might begin to sort of make it a bone of political contention once again. Um, I guess that's maybe what Keir Starmer seems to have been preparing for, perhaps, um, with his kind of shift in strategy, that the, the, the conversation might sort of shift, begin to shift back the other way. Um, I suppose the other, yeah. it's also a bit like, because there's a conversation we, we had on the show yesterday about uh, Rishi Sunak um, using a private GP. Um, and that sort of thing doesn't matter, Manveen, if everyone else can get a GP's appointment. And so, you know, large number, you know, high levels of net migration don't matter as much if everyone's got a house that they can, you know, afford or, you know, the roads are working, the trains are working. All that. And a lot of the, the concern or at least the, the ability to drum up uh, ang public anger about immigration mm. comes from accessing services and public services in a bad way right now. Austerity is coming down the road. And so it's quite easy yeah. to sort of fuel fuel the, the, the anger on that. Well, we end up sort of seeing a lot of political problems through the prism of immigration. And actually what we're really complaining about is planning laws or lack of investment in the NHS. I mean, obviously it means that you need to invest more because there are more people, but then hopefully they're also, you know, this, this figure, we should just sort of specify, doesn't look at the people coming over in, in small boats. This is people who are coming legally. Yeah either with work permits or with student visas. So these are people who presumably will be paying taxes if, they're, if they've got work permits. So, you know, they will also be paying into the pot that pays for the NHS, that pays for all the services that they should be using. And whether we're, we're allocating that money right, you know, properly is actually a broader political debate. But I think the problem is it's very easy for politicians to say, well, this is all because of immigration, as opposed to we just haven't fixed planning laws. Yeah. <laughs> We're not building enough houses for anybody. And actually, That's your, your, your point about working, you know, a lot of them are working in uh, public services, schools and hospitals and uh, whatever else, because, you know, care homes, uh, because um, we can't find people here to do it. I mean, what, the one quirk, you know, I think it'll be interesting what happens in the next round, you know, the sort of post-COVID round. Because I think the number is particularly high last year because foreign students in the sort of 2020 year didn't come because mm. of COVID restrictions. And so they would have studied remotely. And then, so you basically have possibly got two years worth of students. We uh, also sort of had all those big public programmes like, you know, uh, we, we decided people from Hong Kong could come. Exactly. Ukraine, yeah. Afghan interpreters, and all of that has obviously had an impact as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's all very broadly very popular. I think it has a lot of appeal across the country. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it was interesting. Uh, but it's, it's sort of making those cases, isn't it? You know, we've, we've done more on Ukraine. Well, that does mean there's a knock-on effect on the numbers. Uh, let's move on to talk about these other stories on the front of the Times today. Uh, Britain's told how to save energy. Uh, million, ministers are preparing a £25 million public information campaign, which, just to put it in context, is less than they're spending on sprucing up lay-bys for lorry drivers, so it's not a huge amount of money, uh, to, reduce, uh, to encourage people to reduce their energy bills by turning down their boilers, switching off radiators and energy rooms and taking showers instead of baths. Uh, James, we know that you're a fan of a bath. Um, yes. Is this, will you listen? Will you listen if, I don't know, Jeremy Hunt appears on the television, Chris Whitty style, and tells you to have a shower? <laughs> Do you know what? I was sort of thinking about this, and I kind of think that I would, because I know that um, I've seen a lot of people commenting that, you know, oh, this is, all, this is all so obvious. We all know this. I kind of think that for me, I would find it useful to be reminded actually. And yeah, I sort of, I, I don't think it's a bad idea. Um, there's a lot of the stuff, yeah, I, I probably haven't thought about enough. And I kind of found it, yeah, I think I'd find it useful. 
to be told about it. Um, and, and Manvin, I was quite struck in the, in the Steve Swinford's piece in the paper today. They were saying this is, you know, obviously this was the idea that Liz Truss put in the bin because it was too nanny statish. Um, in other European countries, I think France and Germany, they've they've sort of pictures have been like, do your patriotic bit. If everyone cuts cuts back on their energy use, that'll be you know good for the country. Apparently, we're not going to do that. We're not going to go down the patriotic duty front. We're just going to talk about saving money, which is a bit ironic, really, given that we quite like to claim that we're all patriots. I know it's it, it's odd. I mean, a we are we have been really slow compared to the rest of Europe. You know, they've had campaigns running for much longer, and they're already seeing an impact. You know, people are changing behaviours. So we're we're standing, you know, we're going from a standing start. So we're, we're, we we should have done this much sooner. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's really odd, given that every time you question a minister these days about anything that's going wrong in, wrong in government, they like to say, well, because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that's the answer to everything. And it's really odd that they're not using that in this campaign, which is where the patriotism comes from. You know, this is sort of energy is now uh, a national security issue. We should be thinking about how we use it. Um, so I sort of, I don't know, I sort of wish they'd try everything because it feels like this is a message we need to get out quite quickly before we start having shortages, which we haven't even talked about as a nation. You know, we haven't had the idea that we might all have, you know, an hour a, a day where we just don't get electricity. <laughs> we have no idea how we'd cope with that. I, I, I'm always alarmed because everybody I know who works in government on energy hasn't turned their boiler on yet. <laughs> I'm really worried now. Like, you know, should I should I be wearing a woolly hat and 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 walking around in another five layers? <laughs> we we've just gone for the like one hour boost, so we haven't gone the full. We're not on oh, the schedule, well but just you know, when it when it reaches particularly bad, we have a one hour boost and that holds. But I heard um, Harry <laughs> well, Wallop was on breakfast this morning, uh, talking about how he's, he's he hasn't had his heating on at all. It gets down to about 15 degrees uh, and he just shouts at his kids when they come in and say it's cold and they've only got a T-shirt on. <laughs> but like James, I mean, I, I quite like it when the government tells you about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though everybody knows it. I mean, I remember, I think it was Gordon Brown who sort of just reminded everybody that when you leave your charger in the socket, it's using electricity. And I know I should know that, but actually just having it spelled out sometimes is quite helpful. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to know, like, uh, I'm not an expert. Like, you know, is it the booster? Is that what you should do? Should it be an hour of your boiler... Uh, you know, turning the thermostat up, or is it better to yeah. have it at low level all the time? Yes, no well, idea. there's a good interest. Somebody tell us. <laughs> yeah, I think if you're at home all day, having it on like 18 degrees all day is better than constantly cranking it up and cranking it down because it sort of just there holds it at a temperature. But That's if you're out news. during the day, uh, you should turn it off. I mean, basically, you don't need it on in the morning, do you? Get up, get Just dressed, yourself. get out of the house. <laughs> Um, anyway, there we are. This, this, is slightly, this is almost <laughs> dangerously close to people talking about their train journeys or dreams. People talking about their borders. Right in a minute, uh, we'll we'll um, talk about uh, James's column and the brilliant story of the uh, minister who sent a video to a conference, but sent the wrong one. We'll do that in just a sec as well. James Marriott and Manveen Rana are still with me. Uh, James, uh, we've got a couple of minutes to do your column. Uh, it's yeah. just a small matter. Of uh, democracy's had a good year, but it's still in his relatively relative infancy and could be outpaced by autocracy. Discuss yes, briefly. The entire history of democracy in two minutes without repetition, uh, hesitation, or deviation. Um, no, I, I've just been fascinated recently by the slightly kind of um, the slightly kind of mood swinging coverage of the fate of democracy, which you know a year ago or a couple of years ago we all thought was completely doomed. The rise of Trump, uh, you know. Putin, you know, on manoeuvres, um, Xi Jinping uh, tightening his grip on China. There's now been a kind of slightly opposite tip of opinion saying, you know, Putin's doing terribly. The, the American midterms, you know, uh, election denying candidates were, you know, um, 
didn't do nearly as well as they thought they were going to do. Power's been transferred peacefully in Brazil. Do we now all think that democracy is actually okay? And my column was basically trying to take um, a very long view, um, kind of saying, you know, we've got to stop swinging backwards and forwards a little bit and look at look at the whole picture. <laughs> and just sort of thinking, you know, I mean, really quite a long view, actually, in hindsight, now, now, now I read that column back. Um, trying to look at, you know, how things sort of fit together historically and how kind of, I, I, was really, I really think it's interesting, you know, democracy is so recent, you know, Britain has been a full democracy for less than 100 years, if you count, you know, from when women got the vote, you know, places like Switzerland, women were only fully enfranchised in 1990, you know, wow. this is still yeah, yeah, yeah. like a really recent thing that we're doing. The other thing I want to pick you up on, James, is you said that you complained in your column, social media inhibits complex debates, but I thought social media was good the other day in another one of your columns. Our echo on, chambers, what... lingering in our echo chambers, you thought was uh, was good. Yeah, but I said um, <laughs> social media was bad, and it. I know there's another social media is bad column. <laughs> <laughs> I never say it's good. I no, never say it's good. Yeah, if I could. <laughs> um, uh, we need to move on, um, but just because I want to talk about uh, this uh, brilliant story of Deanna Davison. Uh, she's the what, a leveling up minister. She was supposed to be speaking at a meeting of, nor of leaders in the North yesterday and something went wrong. Rob Parsons is the Northern Agenda editor and joins me now to explain. Rob, you were at the conference. What happened? Morning, Matt. Yes, it was uh, quite a funny uh, little episode, although not for Deanna, I don't think. So the as you say, it was the Great Northern Conference. It was at uh, an event, uh, a venue in Manchester, not far from Old Trafford and the great and the good of the Northern politics and business world were there. Uh, this particular panel event was about connectivity and growth. Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, had just done a speech and um, we were told that Deanna Davison, the levelling up minister, also a Vedwall MP in County Durham, uh, couldn't make it, but that she was sending a video, uh, as is quite often happened, yeah. when ministers can't turn up. And so this video was played and uh, the audience quickly became quite bemused because it was clearly the video didn't mention the north at all it was sort of a TikTok style uh video of deanna davison preparing to go into the commons to speak and then her talking about it afterwards and yeah there was no mention of the north or northern england or anything like that and it lasted about a minute or so and it came to an end and there was laughter uh kind of a stunned silence the compare said okay and then <laughs> just moved on to the next thing um and it became apparent that uh basically the wrong video had Amazing. Been we're not quite sure how how that <laughs> happened um and the right video was later played where she said all the things that you would expect you'd expect minister to say um, one uh, Tory, uh, I think it was speaking to the Mirror, said it confirms many colleagues' worst fears about making the self-proclaimed TikTok Tory an actual minister because she's big on TikTok. Um, James or, or Manvin, have you ever had anything similar happen to you? I mean, I I do remember uh, one of my colleagues, and it's always awful to be like, not me, obviously. Yeah, it's somebody else. Somebody but, else is um, an idiot. They they had to send it was was an investigative reporter had sent some photos related to a story they were looking into, really important to a forensic specialist to look at, and accidentally sent her entire family album. <laughs> <laughs> Quite by accident. That's I mean, very the, nice. <laughs> the forensics guy was very bemused. Uh, James, anything similar happened to you? You've ever accidentally filed the wrong column where you were very pro-social media? <laughs> no. That you know, coming. Extraordinarily, um, extraordinarily, it hasn't. I can't think of anything, which seems lucky. It probably means it's about to. 
occasionally we've uh, we've played out a pre-record where somebody's not bleeped out some swearing or something like that. So, uh, which is you know an occupational hazard. Uh, lovely to speak to you, Rob. Thanks for that. Uh, good to speak to you, Rob Parsons, the Northern Agenda editor. It's really good. He does a daily email all about what's going on in the north in uh, in terms of politics. So uh, sign up for that. Uh, and we also heard from James Ma- Marriott and Manveen Rana. You can listen to Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. And subscribe to The Times to read uh, James's uh, column, which is excellent today. Uh, right, up next, all the Tories are going. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, right now, lots of Conservative MPs are weighing up whether or not they should go now. Do they decide not to stand at the next election? Or do they, you know, turn against the polls and uh, give it another go? Is it time to chuck in the towel? They've been given until December the 5th to tell Tory headquarters whether they plan to run at the next election, expected in 2024. And given the state of the polls, Tory HQ is braced for an exodus. Just this week... Conservative MPs, former Cabinet Minister Chloe Smith and the Prominent Committee Chairman William Wragg announced they wouldn't be standing again at the next election and many more expected to follow in the coming days. But what will they do next? That's what we're going to take a look at today. The saying goes, there's nothing as ex as an ex-Prime Minister. But what about an ex-MP? We'll hear from some of them. Uh, Edwina Curry's coming up. Matthew Powers will be here in just a moment. But first, joining me, Lucy Fisher is Times Radio's Chief Political Commentator. And Lucy, you've been speaking to a lot of people in Westminster about this idea of a big exodus. Yeah, I think it um, speaks to the general sense of defeatism among many Tory MPs. I've spoken to quite a surprising number who privately are adamant that they're going to lose their own seat and even more who think that the Tory party as a whole is heading for a spell of opposition at the next election. So that's the the really key context, I think, that is sort of influencing people who round about now are starting to think, you know, should I give up my seat um, and give myself enough time to look for a new good plum job outside of, um, outside of Parliament? I think we should stress that this um, deadline on uh, December the 5th, many Tory MPs have said to me, nah, don't pay too much attention to that. <laughs> Those people who definitely know they're leaving um, and have made up their minds will tell the party. But many other people who are mulling it over will tell CCHQ for now that they're staying and then they'll make a final decision six months before the next election. So I think the final total will be much higher than the total we get around uh, around about next month. And just to say, put, trying to put a number on that, some Tory MPs... Um, um, we'll just say in a normal election, it's around about 30 to 
20 uh, Tory MPs who stepped down. Some uh, MPs have told me they reckon it'll be as high as 80 stepping down. Wow. about one in four almost. Yeah. So if that were the case, uh, and some people think that is too high an estimate, that would represent a real generational change. Uh, Let's just take a look at Chloe Smith and, uh, and William Wagg. What were the reasons they gave this week for why they were standing down? Well, quite curious, very bland um, departure messages um, given by both of them. I'll I'll read them to you because they're both brief. Chloe Smith, um, who represented uh, Norwich North, said, I've been honoured to be Norwich North's MP. It's a fantastic job for a fantastic place and it's a particular privilege to be able to represent Norwich and Norfolk where I come from. I hope I've been able to make a difference locally and nationally. In 2024, after 15 years of service, it will be the right time to step back for me and my young family. Will Rag, uh, who represents a seat in Greater Manchester, said, It is a privilege to be a member of Parliament for Hazel Grove. I've made the decision not to stand at the next election. I shall continue to represent my constituents to the best of my ability in the meantime and thank everyone for their wonderful support over the years. Yeah, it's not, not I mean, yeah, like you said, boring. quite bland. It's quite yes. boring. I mean, the interesting thing about Chloe Smith is she's only just turned 40. Yeah. She's been a minister off and on uh, since, uh, what, 2011? Yeah. She briefly made the cabinet during Liz Truss's uh, period. Um, And she's stepping down. She's an ex-minister at 40. Yeah. Well, she was the youngest Conservative MP of her intake when she arrived in 2010. She was 27 then. She also became the youngest minister in David Cameron's government when she was promoted at 29. She came in in a 2009 by-election. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was seen as a big star of the party back then. Big star of the party. That star rather fell after that disastrous Newsnight interview in 2012. Um, I'm not quite sure she's ever recovered from that. I think really for her, she was a huge proponent of Liz Truss and she will know now that her um, any chance of preferment under Rishi Sunak is, you know, for the birds. I think with Will Rag as well, you know, he fell out big time with Boris Johnson. You know, he he sort of reported um, the whips for bullying. Yeah, even went to the police oh, over of that. Course, yeah. And recently in in the uh, in the summer, you know, he he stepped back for a few months to recover from a bout of depression. So that may be a reason he's stepping back. Also with Chloe Smith, you know, she has um, in recent years suffered from breast cancer. I think last year she confirmed that she got the all, all clear. But just as you know, just speculating, you know, those those kinds of um, shocks can make people reappraise their yeah, lives, can't they? There's something else I want to do. Yeah. Well, let's tell you what, let's bring in Matthew Paris, Times columnist, of course, and former Conservative MP. Morning, Matthew. Hello, Matt. What's your? You, you're still very well plugged into the Conservative Party. What's your sense of the number of uh, Tory MPs who who might chuck in the towel and not even bother standing again? Well, I I don't think eighty is an overestimate of the the, the possible number, uh, and of course there'll be to their number will be added plenty who do stand again but don't win again. So you, we're really looking at you know a hundred hundred and fifty. Conservatives looking for, for for new jobs over the next couple of years. I completely uh, agree that this December the fifth thing is a total red herring. You don't have to say when you're going to <laughs> stand down and until the election itself. And many of them, it won't even be that they're mulling it over. They may have decided they're not going to stand again. But if you're looking for a job, it's rather better that you're doing the job that you're doing and uh, you haven't been reported in the newspapers having as having decided to stand down in other words you're going to move from one job to another that that that's what i did and that's and, and just to remind us when you were a conservative mp and you quit sort of mid parliament to go and uh, uh, yes. present weekend world to what, mrs thatcher's fury yes she was absolutely <laughs> livid but um <laughs> What was it that made you do that? Because there'll be lots of MPs in a sort of similar place, a bit fed up, you know, not climbing the 
the ministerial ladder or or have been up and down it because there was somebody from the BBC did a stat this week 61% of Conservative MPs uh, can call themselves a former minister yes. uh, so they've sort of been there done that and they want to go and try something else just remind us what, what why why you you left when you did oh it was an easy decision for me i wasn't getting anywhere and I, I saw all the people who had entered Parliament at the same time as me going up the ladder, and I wasn't. So I saw that I, I for one reason or another, I just wasn't uh, going to become a minister, let alone prime minister, as I had originally planned. <laughs> and, uh, and then Weekend World offered me twice the salary uh, that that, that uh, an MP gets to, to take over from Brian Walden. So that was an easy decision. I, I was someone who was, so to speak, tempted away. But most of these 80 won't have been tempted away uh, they will just feel that they're in a dead-end job that they're probably going to lose in two years' time. And if they're wise, they will start looking now because come the morning after the next general election, there will be a flood of ex-MPs onto the market. And so the time to do it is to start looking now. And, and some of those, I mean, the, the ones who've announced they're standing down already, Lucy, not necessarily huge household names, but, you know, Matt, it would be a surprise if Matt Hancock stood again. You know, someone like Gavin Williamson's had several comebacks. It would be a surprise if he had another one. So we could see some quite big names just, just throwing the towel and saying they're not standing again. Yeah, and when you mentioned Gavin Williamson, um, his seat disappears in, in Staffordshire. Oh. So don't forget we've got these boundary yeah, changes yeah. coming in. And while they are positive overall for the Conservative Party, in fact, they're going to lead to pitch battles in some areas where there are um, Tory MPs clustered. So Staffordshire is one, uh, North Wales is another, um, Cumbria is another. So some people might decide just to to pack it in because their seat boundary dis, um, their seat disappears. Um, others may not want to battle a neighbour with whom they've become good friends over the years. And others still may just look at the sort of tweaks to their boundary and how that sort of changes the sort of uh, the makeup of their constituency and not fancy it. And beyond that as well, it's worth uh, adding that there are some seats that nothing to do with boundaries have just seen demographic changes that mean they will be really difficult to hold on to. So um, Ian Duncan Smith in Chingford and Woodford Green in North East London. Many people sort of think he shouldn't really have won it last time. It was a surprise that he clung on. Um, Escher and Walton in Surrey, and that, that's Dominic because Raab. They're shifting that sorry is to is, the left, younger. Exactly. And it's a lot of these suburbs outside of uh, outside of cities where um, you know, younger uh, and labour leaning um, voters, public sector workers are moving out in in those concentric rings. So what used to be sort of prosperous, leafy Tory suburbs increasingly become sort of young families, public sector workers, people more inclined to vote Labour. And again, even in places around um, you know, Manchester, I look at seats like Altrincham and Sale West, Graham Brady, you know, he is a bit of a big name. Chairman of the, chairman of the 1922 yeah. Committee who's had a leading role in all the many leadership shenanigans <laughs> over, over recent months. You know, he's another person who could be under threat from that kind of demographic change in his seat. Uh, and Pe Matt, go, sorry, go on, Matthew. I was going to people like Graham Brady actually will be fine. There will be directorships and, and things like that because he's been there a long time and he's a substantial figure but it's it's going to be very different for, for a lot of the younger ones unlike parliaments when I was uh, ar around a, a lot of these people have never done anything else in their lives much before they became members of parliament what are they going to do next public affairs obviously are, are, would, would be obvious they, you know maybe they go to, into some sort of think tank or 
set themselves up as communications coaches or whatever. But this will be, it's likely, during a Labour government. And yeah. who wants, uh, you know, a discarded Conservative MP as your public relations consultant? Yeah, they can't all have Times columns either, can they, Matthew? No, we'll have to find no, them no, off. No, no, they can't. Mind you, Gavin Williamson, who is a friend of mine, so I hope he won't mind me teasing him. I, I think he used to sell... Uh, log burning stoves. Well, that's lu- that's lucky because the log burning stoves market is really expanding fast. At the <laughs> I think I think um, uh, Matt, you make a good point as well that there will be a flood of MPs on onto the market. Some of whom don't have uh, you know much to their name in terms of status in politics or much experience pre politics, yeah. and therefore it does become um, a bit of a, a finely balanced um, decision whether to leave with your head held high and not contest a seat. You're you might well lose or to go into the next election knowing or being pretty darn sure you're going to lose it but then um, pick up the redundancy because it's a pretty generous yes. loss of uh, yeah. loss of office payment oh, yes, that the commons right. offers but, and you don't mm. get that if you don't stand again you don't get that if you don't stand yeah yeah interesting that really good to speak to you both uh, Lucy Fisher Times Radio's Chief of Commentator and Matthew Paris former Conservative MP but he's much more important now he's a Times columnist you can read him every Saturday well earlier uh, this year I caught up with Sir Charles Walker he's a Conservative MP for Broxbourne announced earlier this year that he, I think he was one of the first ones to announce he wouldn't be standing again. And we spoke a little bit about what life was like as an MP and why someone might want to stand down from the job. And I asked him whether he'd now advise a young, politically ambitious person to even become an MP. Well, I don't think I'd advise them to become an MP. I mean, obviously, if they were interested in becoming a member of parliament, I'd explain to them um, what it entailed, uh, what they would gain from it, but also the sacrifices that they'd make, the same in any job. Um, But I don't think I'd actively go around recruiting people to do it. But of course, if people uh, were interested and wanted to ask me what it was like, and uh, I would obviously um, be there to offer advice. If you were a young Charles Walker now, would you become an MP, given what you now know about what it involves? And if if not, why not? I mean, I think, I, I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it uh, for the first uh, few years. And I've actually, I've enjoyed the whole, I've enjoyed most of my time as a Member of Parliament. But certainly, I think things changed with expenses in 2009 with the expenses scandal. Um, and didn't really get back on track after that. I think that sort of soured, soured relations somewhat. Um, and then, of course, there were there were issues around Brexit, and then we, we there was the economic crash, and then we've had obviously COVID nineteen. Uh, so there's been there's been quite a lot of challenges, and 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 that's been exciting at times, and obviously upsetting at times but i do think the expenses scandal certainly changed the atmosphere in in parliament it's it's there's many rewarding aspects of being a member of parliament it's a great honor and a privilege but one shouldn't do a job forever and as i said i think to you a few weeks ago the reason i chose to leave was that i just didn't love it anymore and i think when you stop loving a job you have to be honest to yourself um, and you have to be honest with the people um, who elect you. It wouldn't be fair for me to get re-elected in Broxbourne, that is a safe Conservative seat, um, just to pick up the paycheck. That would be an entirely dishonest thing to do. That was a Charles Walker speaking to me a bit earlier on uh, this year about why he's standing down in Broxbourne. I've also spoken to Charles Brandreth, obviously famous now as a jumper wearer, author, royal biographer, but he was Conservative MP for the city of Chester in the run-up to 1997 election, one in 92 lost in 97. He told me that when public opinion is against you and you know you'll be turfed out of government, 
it's difficult to find the desire to carry on. My, my, my line, I sometimes say, is at the end of five years, I knew I had contempt for my constituents, but it came as a bit of a shock to the system to find the feeling was entirely mutual. <laughs> Uh, the truth is, I didn't have contempt for my constituents, and I do still go back to my old constituency, which is Chester, the city of Chester, because I'm the Chancellor of the University there. Um, but I didn't pursue my political career because I didn't want to be in opposition. And one of the things I discovered when I was in Parliament is that government is the thing. That's that's what's interesting, that's what's exciting, that's what's rewarding. And I knew my lot would be out for quite a while, so I didn't go back there. So that, in a sense, it was fascinating while I did it. I really loved doing it, but it came to an end. The truth is, I was swept out on the yes, tide. Yes, in the 1997. I don't think whatever you did to the good people of Chester, I yeah. suspect that the, the, the political times uh, may have played a part in it as well. And it's worth remembering that, for example, in my part of the world, the Northwest, I was a, a whip, a government whip. Uh, it was fascinating. But I looked at the swing in that part of the world and one of my fellow MPs from up there was a man called David Hunt, who is now Lord Hunt of the Wirral, who is one of the wisest and nicest guys in politics, a really shrewd operator, an excellent cabinet minister and a really good person. Uh, the swing against him was exactly the same as the swing against somebody else in that part of the world, who I won't name, they're no longer alive, but who had drink problems, marital problems, financial problems, and could not keep their eye on the ball, let alone on the problems of their constituents. It seemed to make no difference that this fairly nice, was well-meaning MP, who was really past it and is now passed on, uh, got as much a swing against him yeah. as this superb MP in David Hunt. So there is no justice. I think they say that it, maybe it's a thousand or two votes in it is the personal vote. But if it's the tide is against you, the tide is against you. Charles Brandreth there talking about being swept out in 97. Well, up next, some advice for Tory MPs standing down, all swept out. Uh, Edwina Curry. It's, it's, a, it's a cracking chat with Edwina Curry on, uh, on what to do. Basically, get drunk seems to be the starting point. So, Matt Cholley on Times Radio. Today, we're taking a look at what all of these Tory MPs, dozens of them apparently, might quit before the next election, what they might do next. What do you do if you're not only out of a job, but lots of your other colleagues are as well, and your party is out of government? Well, Edwina Curry's been there, done that, and got the jungle T-shirts and joins me now. Hi, Edwina. Hi, Matt. Let me just remind you, there's been a whole raft of announcements from Labour MPs earlier this year that they were all going to retire. I think it's about 12 of them. Some of them have been in the Commons for about 40-odd years. Uh, but simply because Labour started their process of uh, reselecting for the next election sooner than we did. Uh, that's why you're going to get a raft of announcements now, uh, because the deadline for Tory MPs to decide whether they want to stay put is December the 5th. And I suppose the polls might be focusing some minds of people who've been Conservative MPs, maybe a, a parliament of, or two, and thinking, can I be bothered with another 18 months of campaigning and knocking on doors and whatever else when I, I know that I'm going to lose my seat? So what, what would you say to people uh, right now wavering about whether or not to stick with it or cut your losses? Well, I think it depends a lot on what you think you're able to do if you are no longer an MP. I mean, they've had an awful lot of status and uh, a lot of attention and rather good salaries. And they're in the heart of things in the House of Commons in Westminster. And what they will find is, and it's often been said, there's nothing as X as an XMP. Uh, and it depends on, to, to my mind, it depends on two things, Matt. 
it depends on what kind of talents they have, genuinely, not the ones they think they've got, but what they really are worth uh, to be paid by somebody else. Uh, and they will find that in many cases, <laughs> talents are rather limited. And the other thing is it does depend on what actually happens at the election, because if your side win, then you can obviously earn quite a living as a commentator, you know, rather above the fray, as it were. Um, but if your side lose, nobody wants to hear from you. Believe me, you are as the leaves that fall from the trees in the autumn, you will get crushed underfoot. Even though, because you did a, a fair bit of what we might call showbiz, even when you were still an MP, you were the first sitting Conservative MP, I think, to go on Have I Got News For You. You'd done some of that stuff, laying the groundwork a bit. But but after 97, you lost your seat in 97, as lots of Conservatives did. The phone, what, just stops ringing completely? Well, it didn't for me. Um, I had a very interesting and unexpected rescue, as it were. And I got taken out for dinner by a whole bunch of media people, some of whom I knew and some of whom I didn't. And they took me to the Odeon restaurant in Regent Street and they got me very, very drunk, <laughs> which you can't do when you're an MP. And they poured me into a taxi to send me back to my flat. And one of them said, don't worry, Edwina, we will look after you. And the extraordinary thing about it was everybody around the table was gay. And they remembered that I had led the debate on gay rights and age of consent in 1984 and I think the little word had gone round you know a bit like don't let poor Nelly starve that I should get looked after so I found myself working a lot in media and in a way being paid to train for it there's a world of difference between as you know between being a guest and being an interviewer or a presenter especially if you're a presenter of a fast-moving live program which I did on numerous occasions at several series so Learning on the job and getting paid for it was very, very nice indeed. I can't see that happening for any of the names that I have seen who have announced their retirement. I mean, who's going to ask William Rag to do something like that? <laughs> and so what what could you do instead? Because I suppose the other thing is that, you know, your your value, If you, it's not just about you being out of parliament, but your, your party being out of government. Particularly if, you, if, as the polls currently suggest, there's a sort of 1997-style landslide. Nobody wants to know about the inner workings of the Conservative Party stuck in opposition up against, you know, uh, a government that's on the up. Anyone uh, with any sense uh, in the Conservatives at the moment, if they are seriously thinking about retiring, has something already in mind. I mean, I look at some of those people, you know, Crispin Blunt, for example, has been an MP for a very long time. He has a military background. Uh, he's already in his 60s. I'm sure he'll keep himself busy with military charities and enjoy going to regimental dinners and all that kind of thing. Um, and some of them are independently wealthy, so they don't have to worry about earning um, uh, their keep. That's not going to be true for others. If they have any sense, they already have a high media um, uh, profile and perhaps they write. Although, as you know, again, it's much harder to make a living writing now than it was, say, 20, 25 years ago when I left the House of Commons, before the internet really took over <laughs> and uh, bloggers and podcasts and all the rest of it, lots of free-to-air stuff uh, took over, making it much harder to earn a living. Uh, others will have city contacts. If they're qualified accountants, if they've been bankers beforehand, if they run businesses, uh, then they will slide back into doing that and they will enjoy They'll be non-executive directors of this, that and the other. And, you know, good luck to them. Good luck to them. 
But um, as for being involved in politics from here onwards, if their party loses badly, basically they can forget about that. It just ain't going to happen. On the subject of writing, you you turned to to novels, uh, drawing on politics, the parliamentary affair, this honourable house, the ambassador. Um, what does it take? Does it is it an advantage being a politician uh, writing novels, or, or or do they actually have to be good? Oh, I think it. I think it's an advantage if you have um, a bit of a reputation, perhaps. But you have to be good. The first one will sell. The second one you need to have an audience. You need to have people saying, well, I enjoyed that. Let's let's read the next one. If you can develop some kind of uh, franchises, where somebody like Michael Dobbs, who was not an MP, but was chief of staff to Margaret Thatcher, developed an extraordinary franchise and some wonderful novels, absolutely brilliant. And nobody remembers now that he ever worked in number 10. So it's possible, but you have to be good at it. I got taken out for lunch um, at the Ritz, if I remember rightly, a Savoy, somewhere like that, by a, a senior literary agent at the time, very distinguished chap. And he said, um, well, what are you planning to do now? And I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, oh, you're ready to write a novel. I said, what, me, write a novel? And he said these immortal words. He said, oh, my goodness, Edwina, if Geoffrey Archer can write a novel, you can write a novel. <laughs> Uh, Edwina, the other thing you did, of course, was you wrote some some diaries. Um, not every MP standing down uh, this time round will necessarily have the same explosive revelations in their diary as you managed. Um, some of the best diaries are written by people kind of on the sidelines, like yeah. Chris Martins, for example. Alan Clark, who was uh, a writer par excellence, his diaries were so entertaining and full of emotion. If you're going to do it, you have to do it genuinely. You can't write with a view to publication. That becomes very false and people will spot that very quickly. But if you write what it's actually like being an MP, how it feels, what the, um, what the successes and the triumphs and the humiliations are all about, then you can produce uh, something uh, very special. Or, of course, if you are really on the sidelines, like Sasha Swire. I loved her diaries. They're absolutely brilliant. It was the, so, uh, the wife of, of Hugo Swire, the MP's wife's uh, diaries. There was, they were right. pretty extraordinary. They were indeed. The view, it, the reason the diaries like that work is that nobody thinks somebody on the sidelines uh, counts, has an opinion, matters in any way. And so the guard will be down and people who are very distinguished and important people will say the most ridiculous and outrageous. <laughs> do you, uh, just, um, just finally on, on the diaries and your, your revelation of your uh, affair with John May, do you have any regrets for doing that? In the heat of the moment, you sort of publish it and get it all out there? Um, once it's out there, you can't take it back. Uh, I didn't do a heat of the moment exercise. Oh, my God, I'd have brought the government down if I'd done a heat of the moment exercise. <laughs> well, no, it is true. Yeah, it was 20-odd it was 20, 20 years later. But I suppose, you know, you start doing it and you sort of think, oh, this is, you know, you build up a head of steam and a sense of inevitability. Did you ever have any regrets? I didn't. I mean, I started keeping the diaries because from 1986-87 onwards, it was obvious that we were witnessing something quite extraordinary with Margaret Thatcher. And that uh, since I was seeing her very often and often in, you know, slightly less guarded moments, woman to woman, it actually, I had a kind of sense of duty that you have to write these things down because history is too often written in a managed way. It's not contemporaneous. It doesn't have the emotion and the, the feel of the moment. So, you know, go and sit down, waiting in the House of Commons at midnight to do a vote 
sit down and write something down about what's happened that day that has been so astonishing. Uh, and my idea was that at some point I would write a memoir of the Thatcher years. And when I dug them out and showed them to publishers some years later, particularly after John Major had published his, which I thought were a total whitewash, I really wasn't impressed. Um, and I thought, no, I can, I can set the record straight here. I think you have a duty to set the record straight if you have that information. Um, did I enjoy the attention? Up to a point, Lord Copper. <laughs> and just finally, Edwin, if you were a Conservative MP now, would you tough it out? Would you stand again? Or would you already be going for a boozy lunch at the Ritz with all the, all the best connected people you could find to try and find a route out of all of this? If I was 35, I would stand and fight again. Not least because that kind of loyalty brings its own reward uh, in due course. It, whether you win or lose, you've got a, a good record. If I were 65, oh, I'd be going for the boozy lunch and I'd be asking how many non-executive directorships I could get, assuming, of course, that I was prepared to take money for my name, which I have never been uh, willing to do. But the people for whom it's tough have been there 15 years, 20 years, and... Um, perhaps have been rather battered by extraordinary events of the last 12 months or so. And everybody is suffering as a result of, of COVID and the lockdowns. Everyone's suffering from a form of PTSD, you know. They need time to recover, some of them. The snowflakes will vanish, uh, as they always do in the heat of the sun, and the others will kind of uh, fight again and uh, perhaps live to tell the tale. We'll see. I think there'll be more announcements. I'm sure of that. But um, as to whether we will have heard of them in five years' time, your guess is as good as mine. Edwina Covey there with some advice to Conservative MPs who may well decide to stand down. They've been given a deadline of uh, December the 5th, although, as we hear from Lucy Fisher, lots of them will probably just tell the Tory party later on. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come... This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On and play the hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon.